The following is a message by Professor Josh Van E. of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. So when I had to uh, pick a text out of 1 Corinthians, I thought back to the first exegetical paper I had to write as a student at Westminster. Um, Dr. Peter Jones in NTI focused our attention on 1 Corinthians 15.45. And uh, he used that class to highlight this text and also highlighted it for us in, uh, in Pauline epistles, um, going into its depths and riches. And so when I saw he hadn't chosen it, I thought, I better, um, I better uh, highlight it for you. Uh, and so that's what I hope to do this morning, highlight it for you, though we can't go into all of its riches. We'll hopefully scratch the surface and uh, increase in you a desire uh, to study and meditate on it more. But let's uh, pick up the reading with verse 35. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll we'll read 35 through the end, um, the section that our text falls in. Uh, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish man, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body which is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he chooses, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is alike, but there is one kind, of, one kind for men, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are celestial, celestial bodies, and there are terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual which is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are out of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall also um, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Lo, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal nature must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our passage, we will focus on verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. And we need to first set the context at least a little bit, very briefly, um, that Paul is here having to deal with people in Corinth who are denying the physical resurrection. Um, And he takes that up here in chapter 15. And there's debates whether these people were proto-Gnostics, or maybe they were followers of Philo, or maybe it was more a generalized Platonic, Hellenized dislike for the corporeal, right, for the body. But what seems clear is that for them, a physical resurrection of the body was a stumbling block. It was foolishness. It wasn't spiritual enough for those who were enthralled with the wisdom and the mysteries of the other religions of that day. For them, the physical, the physical bodily resurrection would not be a step forward, but it seemed to be backward. It was still leaving man stuck in the body. Progression, salvation, they thought, consummation should involve this separation, this freeing from the body. And so in chapter 15, Paul takes up this error. And the first portion focuses, we could say, on the historical fact of the resurrection. It was seen, right, by many witnesses, and its centrality to the gospel. This is what Paul preached. This is what the gospel was about. And so he does that in verses 1 through 11. Um, Then he goes on in verses 12 through 34 to talk about the errors that occur, the consequences, if we deny a physical resurrection. And in that section, he also highlights for them what the real results of the resurrection are, that Christ is the first fruits of all who are in him. But then in our section, beginning with verse 35, he enters a new argument or a new stage of his argument. Um, One commentator calls it the how of the resurrection. Uh, In it, Paul is attacking those who doubt the resurrection because they cannot conceive of the physical body being resurrected. They have seen people buried. They've seen them turn back to dust. How is this possible? What kind of body can be raised? What is this resurrection like? And so Paul hammers them, right? Strong language calls them fools because they've missed the very fact that the resurrection body 
is a progression, that it is not the old body that is the resurrection body. And this progression involves a change, uh, even though it also involves continuity. Um, And he also hammers them because they seem to forget that the one who makes this possible is the creator God himself. And so Paul, at the beginning of this section, uses the analogy of a seed, right? One kind of body sown, another kind of body is uh, grown out of that. There's this progression and yet continuity, seed to the full-grown wheat. And he also, right, emphasizes all the things that God has created, all the different bodies that he's created, and how he's made each of them fitting for where they are in life. And, and so, how are we to doubt that this creator God will not also be able to make a body fitting to the world in which the resurrected humanity will inherit this kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, the consummation. And so now we're centering in on where our particular passage occurs And as we look at it, I want to note two things here and then expand on that. And the first is that in verse 45, he does not have sin in his sight per se. As we look at this context, it's instead the creational that is highlighted. Um, Because what is the quote? Uh, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Where does this quote come from? This comes from Genesis 2-7. This is before the fall. This is prelapsarian. This was when man was first created. That is what Paul focuses our attention on here. He is not dealing, as we we, um, then expand it out of here, he's not dealing with the moral, you could say, but the ontological what man was created, the body he was given, not the effects of sin. Um, And so we could say his focus is on creation and consummation, not on sin and salvation, um, as he focused earlier in the passage, earlier in chapter 15. And uh, the second thing is that he's focusing... Um, both in the title he uses um, and in what he describes, on Christ as the last Adam, as the first fruits of the new humanity. Um, It is not Christ in his incarnation. It is not Christ focusing primarily on his salvation work, right? But Christ became what he became, the, the first fruits. Um, And so we can see that, uh, as I said in the title, he's called the last Adam. He's focusing on this um, parallel with the first Adam and the last Adam. And uh, in in the Greek, right, we have the verb in ellipsis. It's in the first section of it, um, the first man, uh, eginata, right, became uh, the living being. Um, And then we need to supply that verb in the second, right? This last Adam became 
the life-giving spirit. Um, this is not God in his ontology, right? God does not become, right? He is. This is Adam. This is Christ as this last Adam, this first fruits. It's focusing on his humanity. It is what his humanity became. And so we need to ask, you know, it's at least helpful here, right, to emphasize, well, what, when did he become this, right? What is the event, right? Paul has two events in mind. The creation of Adam, Genesis 2.17, and then Christ becoming the life-giving spirit. And when was that? Um, it is not when he became flesh, not the incarnation, right, but his resurrection. Right? This is Paul's focus. This is when he became the life-giving spirit at his resurrection. And we can go out of this to then ask, well, what is Paul telling us here? Right? Why does he put these two in parallel? Um, because we can see very, um, you know, very close parallels that he's bringing out. He's using the same verbs, the same prepositions, the same phrasing for both of these. Right? He's putting the first man becoming a living being, right? the last Adam becoming a life-giving spirit. And I would argue that what he's doing is defining the body. What he's been talking about in 42 um, up to here and, uh, and 46 and following. The, the, the natural versus the spiritual body. And that is his focus in giving us these two Adams. That it is not just Adam, the first Adam, who had this natural body. Right? As Paul will say later, it's all who are in him. Right, All of us have this natural body. So also with Christ, um, the last Adam. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The phrase, their life-giving spirit, I would argue, defines not just Christ, right, but the resurrection body, the, the consummated body. And I would argue that's the most natural reading of this parallel structure, that the focus is on what Adam became and what all who come out of him will be. And so also what Christ became, and so all who will be like him, what they will be. It, uh, it fits this surrounding context. If you notice when we read verses 42 all the way through 49, there's this hammering of antithetical parallelism, we could say. right? What is sown in, uh, is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. Dishonor, glory, weakness, power physical body, spiritual body. And then Paul picks that up right again in 46, right? Um, physical, then spiritual, the man of the earth, the man of heaven, and so forth. So in the whole context, he is contrasting these two bodies, these two modes of being, the creational and the consummational. And as... Um, as we focus, if we remember our first point, right, that the focus in 45 is on Adam pre-fall, 
we now read what Paul has given us before that in a new light. What first might have struck us as categories for sin, right? Dishonor, weakness. Um, uh, we now see that they can also apply to what was Adam's body. That his body was corruptible. His body was not um, the glorified body. Right? His body was not the consummated body of power. And if we continue in what follows, we need to bear in mind also the same, uh, the same thought. As we talk in, in, uh, in verse 47, right? The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. There again, we're not focusing either on um, ethical, but on the ontological. And it's not, the from heaven is not about where Christ came from, right? But where this body um, will be, the, the, the world in which it will inhabit, Adam's living body, right, his living being, inhabits the earthly, the dustly. Christ's resurrection, glorified body, inhabits the heavenly, just as our glorified resurrection bodies will inhabit the heavenly. But uh, I have to at least, um, you know, comment that Many people are hesitant to take life-giving spirit as a reference to what our bodies will be like. Um, they want to stay, keep it particular to, to Christ um, as the one who brought this salvation, and mainly because of the use of zoyo poyun, this term of life-giving. How, how does that, you know, what does that mean? Um, almost all the other uses we find of it is of members of the Trinity, giving life, giving resurrected life. So how can we say that it applies to us, to us in our glorified body? And, and I would argue that Paul here has a little, you know, something a little bit more specific in mind. If you look at each term he uses there, he heightens it. It's the first Adam, the last Adam, right? It's the, uh, uh, the natural and then the spiritual. And so he heightens also this last term. It's not just a living being. He didn't just want to say a living spirit to emphasize what our body was like, right? But it's a body that sustains itself. Now that is not a denial of its dependence on God, Right? That even the Spirit, the Spirit, capital S, is the one who brings it about, who imbues it. But it is a body that, unlike the natural body, doesn't need food, doesn't need water, isn't dependent on all these created things for life. And I would argue it's, it's similar to John's use of the living water throughout his gospel. This living water that he ties with the Spirit. But those who have the living water, right? They have that living water flowing within them, life within them. This is the life we look forward to. The life when we 
no longer can die, the life in which we no longer can sin when we have confirmed righteousness, when we have eaten of the tree of life. And so we could go into more details. Paul's use of his phrasing here as scripture, it seems he includes that in the scripture connotation. Um, We could go into other issues. Um, But uh, I want to leave you with one one last last thing that Paul highlights here. Um, He's focusing not only our attention on the creator, God, the the necessity of the physical, right, and its, uh, its priority to the spiritual and the organic tie between the two. Um, but he even says if there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. If there is this first atom, there is also this, this last atom. And this is outside of salvation, as we mentioned. That isn't exactly in his view. He never loses sight of it, right? But this is Adam at the beginning. Adam was not made to always stay in this body that could fall, this body that could die, this body that could perish. But always before him was set that tree of life, confirmed righteousness, the glorified body. And, uh, and this is the insight that, uh, that Voss um, so puts so succinctly as eschatology proceeds soteriology. God's plan from the beginning. God's plan did not change. His plan from the beginning was consummated man. Um, but in sin, right, in sin he took it upon himself to fulfill what that first Adam failed in. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may we place our hope and our confidence in your promises that you have given in your word. We look inside ourselves and we see the sin and we see the effects of sin, the frailty in our bodies. And Yet we yearn for so much more. You have placed that hope of eternity within us. Uh, Eternity spent with you in fellowship. In fellowship where we no longer are covering ourselves because of our sin. But in which we are holy as you are holy. And so we pray that you complete that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.